lineage means something. Lineage means something. I used to play uh, the jazz saxophone or the saxophone focused on jazz. And when I would talk to other jazz musicians in the know, we get to talking about, you know, how long I played this and that. You know, I'd mention that I'd play the saxophone and they'd ask, well, who was your teacher? I'd say, well, my teacher was Gary Matsura, who studied for a while under the very known and competent Phil Woods. From mentioning my head teacher, expectations were formed in the listener. I am of Gary Matsura, who is of Phil Woods. Same thing can be applied to, let's say, martial arts. I remember getting into martial arts, and, and uh, as I wanted to get more and more into the study of it, I wanted to get as close to the line of Bruce Lee as possible. So that I could say, I am of Bruce Lee's line. Of course, you don't have to play the saxophone or be interested in martial arts to see that lineage means something. Maybe your something is different. You can think about the, the same dynamic work goes on at work. You might be of a certain company. More specifically, you might be of a certain mentor. For school, for example, you could be of USC. I am of USC. I am of UCLA. I am of Biola. I might be even of a certain professor. Lineage means something. It communicates a little bit of who you are, where you have come from, and why you are the way you are. Well, friends, in our passage this morning, which is Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, we trace back the lineage of all of humankind to the head of all humankind. And we see how that has affected the earthly and eternal destinies of all man. And unfortunately, if you think about who you are and where you have come from and your own various lineage, you know, that can be fun if we think about jazz or martial arts or, you know, who your basketball coach and mentors were. But looking back at our most fundamental line as man can be tough. Unfortunately, the result of this lineage has had devastating and deathly effects. If you are not already there, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. Verses 12 to 21. I'll go ahead and read that section right now. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. Or if, so for if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the, the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's obedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, we have been going through the book of Romans, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Roman Christians in the mid-50s A.D. And Paul wrote this letter to encourage the church. He is an apostle appointed by Jesus Christ to write scriptures and encourage the church to lay the foundation of the church. He also wrote to this church to enlist their support in his ministry and his mission to Spain, where the gospel had not been preached yet. And so he writes wanting to summarize the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. Romans is, after all, all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brief summary, in chapters 1 to 4, those chapters present the fact that all people have sinned against God by turning away from Him. But that through the gospel, those unrighteous sinners can be made righteous in Jesus Christ. They can be saved, declared righteous or justified. Chapters 5 to 8, as we've already moved into this section here, chapters 5 to 8 concern the so what? The implications. And in this section, Paul looks at the many blessings that flow to God's people as they can be assured of God's love for them. God's love for us, if you are here today as a Christian. If you look there at chapter 5, verse 1, you see these many blessings. You have peace with God. Just go ahead and skim that. You, we have there, if you keep on going, ongoing access to God's grace. If you keep on going there, we have hope in the fact that God will indeed bring us to final salvation there in verses 3 and 4. We can know, in fact, the very love of God as that's been poured out into our hearts. The Spirit helps us understand the gospel. And then verse 11, it says that we rejoice in God. Well, from our passage today, we have yet another major reason for why you as a Christian can be confident that God will bring you to final salvation on account of His love. It's because God has delivered us from our line of death. Where Adam is head. That's the line of death. And then he has transferred us into the line that leads to life where Christ is head. And if you, did you hear that there? There's the contrast, the comparison between Adam as head, as representative, and Christ as head, as representative. I mean, for, for Christians, our passage helps us appreciate this transfer of lines. And, and Paul, the author here, he helps us appreciate this by first noting... This brings us to point number one, first noting that in Adam, all die. Once again, we're tracing our lineage. All die in Adam. The problem with sin is plain. It's a universal fact that we all do wrong. If you want a really basic definition right, of sin, it's all doing wrong, whether it be in the mind or of the actions or of the heart even, against God. God gives us commands and we rebel against those commands. So right, right, you just have to ask yourself, do you acknowledge yourself to do wrong? I think it's pretty plain and obvious that we all can acknowledge these things. The problem of sin is a universal problem. No one is exempt here. The scope of sin is universal. That's what it says there in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to who? 
It says they're all men because all sinned. Death goes to all because all sinned. And you notice here that this, this, this first verse here deals, deals with the beginning and breadth of sin. The beginning and breadth of sin. But, but sin is closely followed with death. These are like the, the dual plagues that, that plague you guys if you are a man or a woman in Adam. All of us, the Bible said, have, have come from Adam and Eve, and they are our parents. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, right? See, he's, he's addressing beginning of sin, at least humanity. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death following on its heels through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Again, these are the two plagues there. And you see the pattern as Paul's writing here. You know, he's, he's a competent writer, a very sharp guy. And first he deals with sin. Then he deals with death on account of sin. And then he mentions death again because all sinned. These are the two plagues that are covered here. Traced back to Adam and his rebellion against God. If you're visiting with us and you're exploring Christianity, you know, you want to know more about what us Christians believe. What he's actually referring to here, uh, in terms of the one man, he's refer- what he's referring to is something that took place in Genesis chapters 1 and, well, Genesis chapter 3, really, but obviously what God does as it leads up to man's sin is important. So go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 1. And there God makes man and he sets Adam as well as Eve in the Garden of Eden to show them his good rule. He cultivated them there in the garden, and he blessed them incredibly with everything that they could think of, right? This is a creature of the dust, raised up, formed, given life, and then blessed with everything that they can think of, all the fruit in the garden, all the trees. You know, God protected them there, and they were given a charge to steward everything that God had given them. God blesses Adam, but God gave them one limit, only one limit. Look in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. It says there, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in, that, in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This actually seems, this, this, this promise here, or this warning here, this limit, seems to be the very thing that Paul is actually commenting on in Romans chapter 5 as he wrote about the one man committing the one act of disobedience here. And as history unfolds, sadly, in the next chapter of Genesis, Adam and Eve, what do they do? They give in to temptation of the serpent, Satan, and they eat of the fruit of the tree. You look at 3.1, the serpent tempts by getting them to doubt the word of their creator. Did God actually say? And then in verse 4, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We see what happens there in in verses uh, 6 and 7. They give in to sin. It was pleasing to the eyes. It offered them what they wanted and they give in to sin. Now, you have probably heard of that story. And if not, um, know that uh, I I hope to be a, a personal example here of how you should not understand this passage i used to think that god didn't want them to eat of the tree because the tree had some sort of magical powers um and the if you ate of the tree then you would then be empowered by it so it was more like a fairy tale reading of genesis chapter three 
which is wrong. That's more like a fantasy novel, right? But scripture does not read like a fantasy novel. You can ask people who write about myths and legends and are experts in these ways, like C.S. Lewis, for example, and they themselves, experts in literature, come to scripture and say, the Bible does not read like myth or legend. It reads differently, very differently here, but as I approached this, I thought, oh, the big, the thing that's really at stake here is the, no, the most important thing is really the tree, the fruit. But friends, you do not want to think of this story like that. The issue isn't so much the tree itself, but what the tree represented and promised falsely to Adam. So you got to think of that question, right? What did the tree promise to Adam, of course, falsely? What did the tree represent to Adam? Right, They already had everything in the garden to eat. They possessed God's love. They had a relationship with God, perfect relationship, where there was no sin. They had God's presence. They had God's word, God's good command. But what they did not have, the one thing that they did not have, was access to that one tree. The one thing that they had, or that they saw negatively, was a limit. They were supposed to trust in God and enjoy him and all the boundaries that God himself, their creator, had made for him. They were supposed to submit gladly, wonderfully to his rightful rule and authority. But what did they do? They defied him. They ruled where God was supposed to rule. They forsook all of the blessings that they had in the garden with God over them for the one thing that was off limits. The command of God. If you have ever broken a command, right? I assume your parents have given you some command, but then amidst that one command to not do something, you forsake all of the other blessings that they have already given you. God's commands had become to them like shackles, limiting their freedom and autonomy. And so they loosed themselves from God's rule and opted for their own rule. This is Adam's sin, the creature of the dust, as R.C. Sproul once described. The creature of the dust defied the one and only holy God and rebelled against their creator. And what makes this worse, all the more unthinkable, is that they tried to become gods themselves, right? God alone is the one who determines what is right and wrong. And so in, in giving Adam and Eve a limit, he had already determined that it is good to obey the Creator and wrong to disobey the Creator. He alone determines boundaries of the tree, but more importantly, that the creation must listen and obey its Creator. Right? But these boundaries, I mean, what were they? They just simply weren't to their liking. So you see the offenses here? Adam, the creature of the dust, defies God, doubts God, disobeys God, and attempts to do what only God can do. And so the boundaries that God himself, the holy God, had drawn, Adam and Eve redraw for themselves what is suitable to themselves. And that's what it means there, what it says in Genesis 3.22, that they became like God. In effect, they became like God. When you are under authority, say, you know, remember you back as a child, right? You don't do this to your parents. You don't redraw the boundaries. You don't do this at work. You don't redraw the boundaries that your boss has given you. You don't do this to the government. So this is not ultimately about what kind of fruit was it. It was a magical fruit that, was in, that provided spiritual powers here. No, it is about rebellion. It's about defying and dethroning God. It's the greatest sin of all. And so God moves to judge man. 
If you look at Genesis 3, 19, we see God's curse in man on account of man's rebellion. You will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam sinned, he had rebelled, he had defied, tried to dethrone God, and therefore he was to die. The creature of the dust returns to the dust. Not just Adam, but all that come from his line. And the Bible teaches us that life in Adam is a life of death and condemnation, right? And I'm sure that you guys know that death is in your future. Plainly obvious. But did you know that physical death is actually due to spiritual death? So even if you're visiting with us today, you're exploring Christianity, and you, you know in your mind that, okay, physical death is going to come. Friends, the Bible says that that physical death is due actually to your spiritual death that has already taken place. When Romans 5 speaks about death, it isn't just talking about physical death. It's it ties physical death to spiritual death. If you look at Romans 5, 12, right, th right there, death is tied to what? A spiritual condition. Verse 12, death is tied to spiritual rebellion of sin. Verse 16, death is related to condemnation, right, which refers to God's pronouncement of judgment, actual judgment. And then also in our, in our passage here, death is contrasted with what in verse 21? Eternal life. So our biggest problem, friends, is not physical death. It's what causes it. That is spiritual death. We see that in the Genesis account even, that uh, physical death is tied to a spiritual death, right? So in 2.16 of Genesis, Genesis 2.16, it's recorded there that God said, in the day you eat the tree, you shall surely die. He's speaking to Adam and Eve. But, question for you guys, when Adam and Eve ate, did they die in that day? They didn't die in that day. They actually went on to live out more days, as Genesis plainly says. So what does it actually mean that they died in that day or that they would die in that day? Without doubt, there was a death. It might not have been physical. It was actually a spiritual death, one that led to God's condemnation and judgment. Verse 16, the judgment following one trespass, what did it do? It brought condemnation. This condemnation is contrasted to eternal life. It is eternal death and condemnation. Verse 18, the one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Again, the condemnation is not just physical. It, it is spiritual. It's eternal condemnation. So to summarize here, if you are in Adam, which is you, which is all of us, this is your life. With Adam as our head and Adam as our representative, there is rebellion against God. There is spiritual death along with physical death. There is judgment and God's condemnation. This, again, is a universal problem. We are all of Adam. We all sin like Adam. No one is off the hook. Some might say, well, I didn't have God's explicit command as Adam did, right? So, so, you know, some might say this, well, I didn't really sin, guys. Come on. I didn't have an explicit command as Adam did. And then, of course, we know, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that Israel had a specific command. And then some of us might say, well, we didn't sin like that. So, you know, we, can't, we might want to claim ignorance. But he, in verses 13 and 14, you can't claim ignorance. He says the people between Adam and Moses, they can't claim ignorance. Sin still ruled and death still ruled. They didn't have the official law of God. They didn't transgress like Adam did. A transgression, a trespass is where God gives a specific boundary and then man crosses that written, received boundary. And so therefore, you know, if, if there's an infraction going to be written up, it's written up in a different way. It's not like Adam's. 
It's not like Israel. Sin and death still reign over everybody with or without the law. That's what it means there when it is not counted. It's not counted in the exact same way as Adam's was, but it is sin nonetheless, and there is death. We, this is just repeat here. Romans chapter 1, right? You don't, have to have the God, you don't have to have God's law to suppress a basic knowledge of God. You can still sin against him just as many people have, exchanging the glory of God for the glory of the supposed glory of the stuff of the world. We know, too, that we go against God when we go against our consciences, which have been given to us by God. So, friends, nobody can say, I have an excuse, guys, because we all reject God at some fundamental level, whether we have the explicit commands of God or whether we don't. The conscience still speaks against us. We still exchange the great glory of God for the stuff of the world. Now, in terms of application, no matter who you are, we are all stuck in this muddy sludge of depravity and now stand condemned before a holy God. This is, once again, life in Adam, with Adam as our representative. Look how clear our passage is as it ties God's judgment of all man to the one man. Verse 15, all people die because of the one man's trespass. Verse 16, all are condemned because of the sin of the one man. Verse 17, death reigns on account of the trespass of the one man. And then again in verse 18, condemnation comes to all men because of the one trespass. Now, some of us in reading how we stand condemned as, as our sin and judgment is tied to the one man's sin, some people might want to say, oh, well, you know, come on here. This, this, I, I, am I necessarily included there in this? Am I really judged for what we do? I mean, hasn't Paul actually been saying that as he's led up to these verses? He's actually, he actually has been saying, regardless if you are a Jew, regardless if you are a Gentile, there is none righteous. No one does good. Our mouths are all like, are, are like graves, and in our pathways there is depravity. So we can't claim ignorance. We can't claim that we get, we get, a, be, we get a buy, so to speak, because we are all guilty. We all have actually sinned against God. So we are guilty for what we do and for who we are. We are guilty for what we do and for who we are. We are sinners, as Ephesians, 2, as, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, we are dead in our trespasses and sins and are by nature children of wrath. The consequence then is eternal judgment, eternal judgment in hell where God is against us in his wrath. This is life in Adam. We stand condemned because of what we do and who we are. I know some of you guys are reading this chapter and you think, well, hold on a second. It's not fair. You might think, look, I understand that I sin, but when it comes to my sinful nature, why am I affected by my forefather? Why am I not born into the world unaffected by my forefather? Right, and some of you guys might, you guys, uh, you might not necessarily ask the question with a heart set against God. You're just trying to make sense of Romans chapter five, right? That is awesome. That's good. We wanna make sense of the Bible here. And you might say, like, why am I not born unaffected by my forefather. I understand that instinct. I've asked the question myself. But, and so let's assume you ask the question because you really want to make sense of what the Bible has to say. You desire to submit your whole entire lives to God. So you're not asking out of a desire to write off God. I want to address you. 
This concept that we are, in fact, affected by our forefathers makes more sense than we realize. Now, let me be clear. Paul is not detailing in specific how we are guilty or how we stand condemned or how exactly Adam's sin comes to affect our condemnation. He doesn't really detail that. But God's word says that it is true. And so, therefore, first of all, we need to accept that because God's word says it's true. But the concept itself makes more sense than we realize, even without the details. Okay, here we're just thinking about the concept. Somehow we are in Adam, of Adam, and we stand condemned in Adam, being of Adam. So just think about your own parents, right? Thinking about things negatively and what you receive from your parents, isn't your life limited by what your parents pass on to you? So when you go to see the doctors, they're going to ask you, so what kind of medical problems did your father have? What kind of medical problems did your mother have? And if you're like me, which I assume you are, you're just going to write down a bunch of them. I have gout arthritis. It used to be associated with the rich man's disease because only rich people could afford meat and things like that. But now it's very clear. It's, just, it's, it's tied to genetics. I receive a predisposition, some would say, to gout arthritis, which is crazy painful because of my parents. Thanks, Dad. I can say that my experience with I can say that in my experience with gout, I have never once said, "It's not fair that I am my father and mother's son." You too might have health issues that you have inherited from your parents, right? If you suffer with allergies, I know a number of us suffer from allergies. I do too. You generally speaking, just generally speaking, don't hear people saying, "Oh, the injustice." It's not fair that I am my mother and father's son. I deserve to be born free, free from a disposition toward allergies. Now, we might despair that it is the case. But generally speaking, you don't see people picketing their parents saying, I deserve to be born free from a disposition to whatever you are passing on to me. Right? It doesn't make sense. It's entirely normal to just go on and accept it. This is just who we are. We are our parents' children. We are, or, or what our parents pass on physically, emotionally, mentally, is who we are. Well, friends, the Bible says that that's the way it is spiritually, in our spiritual condition, in some mysterious way. Let's be clear. It is some mysterious way. I'm not saying that it's tied to genetics here. I'm just saying that, generally speaking, the idea that what our parents give on to us, we just accept, and that's kind of normal. And again, we have to acknowledge that this is a mysterious thing here. Paul does not discuss, once again, exactly how this happens, but that it has happened. We are natural-born sinners with a sinful nature. And looking at Paul's other letter to the Ephesians, he says, we are dead in our sins and trespasses and are by nature children of wrath apart from Jesus Christ. So there we just address the person that might really just, they're just trying to make sense of what the Bible says. They want to submit to God. Now there might be some here exploring Christianity. You hear this and you, ask, you, you say, uh, you know, why can't I be born into, this, into the world unaffected by my parents? But you might ask the question with a heart that already rejects God. Right? And, so, and, so, and so asking the question itself, you already have a heart set against God. And maybe you even lob claims at God saying that he is not fair. 
all an effort to reject the facts that we see here in Romans 5. Well, friends, can I submit to you that your attitude of rejecting God's word, of accusing the one and only holy God, your creator, of being stingy with grace, treating you unfairly, I mean, doesn't that go to show that you are more like Adam than you realize? Remember, what did Adam do with God's word? He disregarded it as well. Friend, let me ask you, what do you do with God's law? Are you eager to embrace it? Do you cherish God's law? Do you desire with every fiber of your being to submit to it? Or are they shackles for you to throw off? Think about, think about what Adam did with God's rule. Do you love God's rule? The fact that a holy God, a righteous God is over you? Do you seek His glory in all of life, with all of your life? Do you want your Creator who is over you, who is present with you in holiness and righteousness to hold you accountable for your thoughts, actions, and even inclinations? Friends, even if you don't believe that you are like Adam, you are more like Adam than you realize. You sin, just like Adam did. And you are guilty before God, just as Adam was. Now, some people ask this question about being born into the world unaffected by our parents, and maybe you ask the question, you know, why can't this happen? More of one that has a godly despair. So maybe you read these words and you know what it's like to suffer like Adam did with those sins. You know the fallout that comes from sin, and you know that the world is messed up and your own heart is messed up. You identify with your forefather, Adam. You know what it's like to rebel against God. You know what it's like to be of the same nature as your forefathers and even commit the same sins as your forefathers, like anger, like Cain who killed, killed his brother in Genesis chapter 4. You know what it's like to wrestle with the root of murder, anger in your hearts, for example. You know what it's like to wrestle with sexually deviant thoughts with King, like King David like the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, and you say, I wish, I only wish I was unaffected by my forefathers as I was born into this world. You know the condemnation that stands against you. Maybe, even in your God-given conscience, you feel the weight of sin now. Seeing not only the darkness around you, but also the darkness inside of you leaves you disgusted, angry, longing for more. You know who you are and who your fellow man is, and you know you need rescue. Friends, if that's you, you are in the perfect position to hear what Paul has to say. This passage actually speaks loads, heaps of hope to your situation. This is exactly where Romans chapter 5 leads us. Of course, the question is, if you feel the weight of sin, you know the problem of man, the question is, who exactly do I turn to? Because as I look across, just look across right now, and if your hope is in anybody else here, if, if your hope is in anybody here in this room, you are doomed. Or if your hope is in yourself, who is there to turn to if indeed all men are sinners and stand condemned before God and are unable to rescue you? Friends, again, you are in the perfect position, and this passage speaks to you. Our passage helps us look not to any man among men. Our passage helps us look to the God-man who dwelt among men, 
to save us. So remember the big idea today, in Adam all die, but in Christ we live. Point number one was in Adam all die. Point number two is in Christ we live. This is point number two here. Given these truths of the sinfulness of man, we understand why Paul lived to get the gospel out, right? As we sung earlier, that the sun pierced the darkness. This earlier section of Romans chapter 5 and 12 and following, right? This early section here presents nothing but darkness. The whole entire world is shrouded in darkness. And so Paul knows, though, that what has pierced the darkness is the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? If you turn over to Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, you know, based on the truths of total depravity and sin and judgment, and that all people are standing condemned, we know why he wants to get the gospel out. Look at 1.16. He knows the gospel, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. Insert there, no matter how sinful we are. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. No matter how sinful we are, the righteous can live by faith. This here is the gospel that he holds out. This here is the gospel that all of Romans summarizes, that God the Son himself took on flesh, entered into our world to save us. This is the good news of the Messiah or the chosen one prophesied in the Old Testament. And God would send this eternal son into the world to live the righteous life that we could not. We couldn't fulfill God's demands and so he sent his son in order that he would. We should have died for our sins, but Christ dies in our stead. We should have bore the wrath for our sins, but Christ bore the wrath that we deserved. And the condemnation that was upon us, God laid upon his one and only son as he died as a substitute for us. And in Christ's resurrection from the dead, he proved to all that payment was made. And now anybody who turns from their sin and trusts in him are free. We are pardoned. We are declared righteous or justified in God's sight. And we are united with our very creator and our very maker. Thank God we don't have to be stuck in Adam, covered in the shroud of darkness, in the line of Adam, but instead we are transferred into the line of Christ. I don't want Adam. Do you want Adam, whose work secures condemnation? Or do you want Christ, whose work secures salvation? Who would want the work of the first man? Who would want to be in Adam I want, as verse 14 says, the one who was to come. Verse 14 says, Adam was a type or a pattern of a model of the one who was to come. Just as Adam's one act led to the devastation of many, so Christ's one act led to the salvation of many. Here he says that he is a type of the one to come. He's just con contrasting or comparing, contrasting uh, the parallel facts that just as Adam's one work led to condemnation or had a certain result, so Christ's act led to a certain result. That's what's being contrasted here. And so to appreciate here, uh, to have our salvation or our hope secured, our assurance strengthened, we're just going to look at these contrasts between Adam's work and the result and Christ's work and the result. The first contrast here, where Adam's work was a work of disobedience, Christ's work was one of obedience. You see the comparison, right? Both are representatives of the, uh, Adam was the one man. Christ is the one man. Both are identified as having worked. 
Adam's work there is one of disobedience. Christ's work is one of obedience. I'll go ahead and read, actually, 15 to 17 once again. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass... Uh, by the way, th this can be a little bit confusing here. If you're just taking notes, if you just want to write on one column, Adam. And everything that comes from Adam, just go ahead and write that down. Especially for you kids, it might help you understand the passage. Just write Adam... And then as you hear the things that come from Adam, just list them down. And then he's going to talk about Jesus. And this is a different column. So just write down all the blessings that come if Jesus is your head. And hopefully you'll understand what Paul is doing here. Verse 15, but the free gift, that's something that's underneath Jesus, is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, we're looking at Adam, that there's death. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift, still looking at this Jesus. And, and the gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespass brought justification. For if because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification and life for all men. For by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We've seen, we camped out earlier in the first point on Adam's work of disobedience. Now we look at Christ's work of obedience. This work of obedience here, is, it ultimately climaxes at the obedience of Jesus laying his life down on the cross, as Philippians 2 uh, refers to. The climax of Christ's faithful obedience is the cross, which of course includes uh, his entire life of faithful obedience when he's talking about the this act of obedience. Our Savior's work is so different from Adam's work, isn't it? I mean, think back to Adam's work. If you got that column, right? Adam possessed God's specific command, but he chose to rebel against God. He refused to submit to the rule of God, and he opted for his own rule. But Christ, though, what does he do? He fulfills all righteousness as the righteous one. And his obedience was marked by a joy, which, of course, did not lead others into sin and death and condemnation, but led to the security of salvation in his cross and in his resurrection, right? That's a contrast there of work. Adam's is disobedience. Christ is obedience. Here's a second contrast. The results are different. The results are different. In Adam, there is condemnation, right? In Christ, there is justification. Look there in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, eternal judgment for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Note, note the result of Christ's work on the cross, which is justification. It flows from Christ's act of obedience, which is also called an act of righteousness. This is here designed for us to marvel at the Savior. If you remember back in chapter 3, verse 10, go ahead and turn there. If you remember here, he's just stating the fact with this conclusion that all are sinful. He says, as is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. But when you look at the work of Christ, which is called an act of righteousness, 
Do you see all of a sudden the wonderful, the beautiful, the holy act of Christ who enters into this world and takes on flesh and dies on the cross? It's an act of righteousness. Amidst the darkness, the shroud of darkness on account of sin and condemnation, you have the one act of righteousness where no one in Adam could ever do an act of righteousness that, that could secure them of salvation. Christ enters into this world, the righteous one, lives the life of righteousness that we could not, and offers up his life on the cross and in his resurrection as the act of righteousness. Here we are moved to marvel at the righteous. So we think back to Romans chapter 1, right? The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Amidst the backdrop of the unrighteousness of man. What is the result? It secures righteousness, justification for all men. Further explanation of verse 18, Paul says there in 19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Again, you have the righteous God-man. He presents righteous obedience, and he secures righteous standing for those who are unrighteous. The results are also described there as life in verses 18 and 21, where Adam's work of disobedience brought death. Christ's work of obedience brings life. Just as death had physical or included physical and the spiritual in Adam, so here in Christ, life not only refers to a resurrection from the dead, it also includes very much a life with God. It includes a salvation. It includes an eternal life there, as it says in verse 21. Now, some of us might wonder here in reading this passage, for example, in, in 18 and 19, let's just go ahead and reread those. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's disobedience, the many will be made righteous. But so what the, what's the deal with the all? Did Jesus die for every human being in a way that secures their salvation? Does he justify all men? Because that's what it appears to say in verse 18. Justification for all men? <clears throat> Does this necessitate that we hold to some kind of universalism, universal salvation for all those? even those who hate Jesus Christ? Well, I think the answer is no. That word all can be used in different senses, and we understand this, and we use the word all or everyone in, in a like manner. So, for example, all or everyone could really be everybody that has ever existed throughout space and time, or all as in everybody that, that exists right now in the world, right? <clears throat> I can also use the word all or everyone in a more narrow sense. That doesn't require me to mean every human being in the world that's ever lived. So, for example, right, if I went to the opening of Star Wars, which I didn't, but let's say I didn't, I said, oh, man, everyone was there. Do I mean that everyone was there? Is it an expectation that you guys actually think that I mean that everyone was there? No, the answer is. You could even mean in a more specific way amongst a group, right? There might be 60-some members of First Baptist Church, and uh, yesterday, you know, we held the, the work day there. And what if I say... What if I say to Oscar, man, who came out to the workday? And Oscar says, oh, everybody did. We all did. Is there an expectation that he really means that all the members or everybody present here uh, turned up to workday? No, the answer is absolutely not. How else do we know that this does not necessitate some sort of universal salvation? Or another way to say it is why should we reject universal salvation, even for those who hate Christ? 
It's because if you look there at verse 17, who are those that are justified? Who are those who are justified? It is actually those who, it says there, receive the abundance of grace. It's those who receive it. And that's what Paul's been talking about leading up here, right? It says that we are justified by faith. That is those who believe, those who trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. It's only those who believe in Christ who receive salvation and justification. It's actually for those who repent and believe the gospel. Now, thinking back to the Adam-Christ contrast, this, once again, huge application here should move us to appreciate our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the God-man who rescues sinners. No natural man can save because there is none righteous. All have turned aside. No human can save, which of course means that no human morality can save. No human morality can deliver us from condemnation. The temptation, of course, that we all know is to rely on some sort of morality, some sort of law by which we think we can climb in our own strength out of the pit of sin and away from God's condemnation. Well, friends, if that's, if that's you, if you're tempted towards that, we are to learn from the Jews that Paul writes to. They tried to use God's law to save or somehow reverse the curse and judgment for sin, but they got it wrong. The law was not given to save, to establish morality. That then would lead to salvation. No, in God's plan, it was given to increase the trespass. What does that mean there? It means that it was given to increase the trespass in that it intensifies the record of specific sin that then would stand against you. It brings greater knowledge of sin. And so since natural man, since no natural man can save and restore our relationship with God, God then sends His eternal Son, the God-man, the incarnate one, the holy and righteous one. And through faith in Him, we are made righteous. We are not made righteous by any law. It only increases the trespass, as it says there in verse 20 and 21. On the cross and in His resurrection, death and sin are destroyed. We sang that beautiful song there, which uh, I want to highlight right now in effort to uh, help us appreciate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he who is mighty. I mean, this is Romans 5, isn't it? Oh, the mercy of God. Oh, the mercy our God has shown to those who sit in death's shadow. That's us under condemnation and judgment. The sun on high pierced the night, the night being a description of this darkness, this depravity, and born was the cornerstone and now, if you look there at the bridge there, that last section there, now what's the, what's, what's the big implication? We magnify the Lord. We rejoice in the God who saves. I trust in his unfailing love. I will sing his praises all my days. And if you look at Jesus paid it all, the song before that, it says there, I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Is small. I love this part here. He says, child of weakness. Can you imagine the father just looking down at his created people in sorrow over their rebellion? With justice, yes. With righteousness, yes. With holiness, yes. But also with sorrow. He looks at the children that he has made, children of weakness, and he says to them, watch and pray. 
that you might know and behold the great work of salvation that I myself will work on your behalf. There is none righteous, and so he sends the righteous one. He parts the skies and sends his eternal son to take on flesh and offer up what you could not offer up. You are not righteous, so he offers the righteous one. You could not offer up any righteous act, and so Jesus Christ offers up the righteous act, and he says, you watch me and I will deliver you from all of your sins. Why is it? Because we know the love of God. This is the love of God that's driving here the salvation of sinners. It's strange, but see, you know that it's only sinners who eventually come to have confidence in Jesus Christ, the Savior. It's only sinners that would have confidence in Jesus Christ, the Savior. Because in your sinfulness, in your nature and in your your action, What else is there to do but to be saved, to receive salvation, and to be secured in the Savior's work of redemption? The way I envision this, you know, this death and depravity, the sin, the judgment, the condemnation that we choose, you know, I imagine that we choose by our own will to go off of the cliff. All of us are heading downward, but who is it that sends out the rescue team, so to speak, in Christ? He dispatches his rescue helicopter. He lowers the stretcher. And now those who see their need of him can in fact be saved. What else is there to do but to thank him, but to glory in him, but to rejoice in him and to rest in our rescue, in the one who rescues us. In sin, we were at enmity with God. We were enemies with God, the Bible says. But now, in Christ, we can all of a sudden have peace with God. I was once separated from God, but now I have ongoing access to this grace in which I stand. In my sin and condemnation, I face the judgment of God, but now I have the hope of the future glory of God and assurance that I will, in fact, and you, Christian, will, in fact, be saved on the last day, all because of Christ, who is in 1 Corinthians 15, called the last Adam. Christian, I hope that you are appreciating the fact that everything you fail to do, Christ has done for you. Everything that God demands you be, Christ is for you even now. And all, once again, by God's sovereign grace. What is it that compels God to reach down into the depths of depravity, to survey the breadth of depravity as well, and then to rescue. What is it? It is God's free gift of grace. For as many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. By way of conclusion, this brings us to our third and final contrast. Third and final contrast. In sin, we deserve judgment, but in Christ, we receive God's undeserved grace. If you look there in 15 and 17, five times in those verses there, five times we see the words free gift. What we deserve, God withholds from us. And what we don't deserve, God freely gives. He lavishes in Jesus Christ. This is God's undeserved grace in the free gift of Jesus Christ. You know, in many ways, what we read in Romans so far is meant to devastate us. It's meant to worry us. 
because we look at death and condemnation and our own sin and our ever-increasing list of sins because the law speaks against us. We stand before a holy and righteous God with that ever-increasing list of sin. But guess what? Though our sins are ever-increasing and condemnation for sin is ever-intensifying, look what is there to go further still. It's the grace of God. And so you have this language here of superabundance. Look in 17. For if by the one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is hugely encouraging. Friends, if you know your own sins are increasing, you feel that they are increasing. If you feel they are intensifying and your own guilt and condemnation is intensifying, friends, you have to remember what is there to superabound, to go further still. It is the abounding grace of Jesus Christ where sin abounded, where sin increased, grace superabounded. Huge encouragement. In your spiritual life, you might come across the old bunkers, where sin used to dwell and wage war within you. But if you are in Christ, if you have Christ as your head, no matter what devastation you feel having been ravaged by your sin, in Christ, this passage says, grace rescues and reigns all the more. Verse 21 says, through the righteousness of Christ. How's that for confidence and assurance? We are sinners, no doubt, but God saves all who repent of their sin and believe on him, just as he has removed the greatest obstacle that stood between you and him, which is our sin and our hostility and our enmity, just as he has already removed those things in Jesus Christ, of course he will not let anything stand in the way of your future salvation that he will bring you. And that provides security, provides assurance. As R.C. Sproul said, we are secure, not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us in God's super abounding grace. If you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, I hope you see that the effects of sin and death are evident even in your own life. The wonderful thing is that hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ is also evident to all. God the Son took on flesh and lived a life for all to see. He died a death, was raised upon that cross for everyone to look at and behold and call upon Him to deliver them from their own sins. Friends, if Adam and Adam's future is your future because you choose to sin just like Adam did and you have a sinful nature, why would you want Adam as head? Here we are to turn to see Jesus Christ and want Christ as our head who delivers us from the wrath to come. I no shadow of a doubt, all because of God's grace to sinners. If that is you, friend, you have not repented of your sins, let me encourage you to turn from your sin. Don't trust in Adam. Trust in Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, and you will be saved, justified, declared righteous in His sight, where all of those sins will be washed away and you will be clean, restored to the Father, our very Creator. If you want to know more about this gospel, I'll be standing at the back of the door. You can feel free and talk to me. I'll be happy to talk to you. I'm sure the friend who brought you can also talk to you as well. Let's go ahead and pray.
Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do indeed thank you for your superabounding grace, your grace that is right there to meet all of our needs. Though we were not righteous, your grace gave us Christ who is righteous. Though we could not work any work of righteousness to secure us salvation, by your grace, you gave us Christ who would work righteousness. Though we cannot do anything to justify ourselves, to declare ourselves righteous, in your grace, you gave us Christ in whom we can be declared righteous. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great work of obedience, of righteousness, as you offered yourself upon that cross in our stead. Lord, we pray that you would help us rejoice. We pray, Lord, that we would know, even in our times of insecurity, when we might fear, because we catalog our own sin, Lord, we thank you that you have also cataloged our sin as you sent Christ to die for each and every single one of them. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that in the cross, it is finished. We never have to pay for our sin, those who repent and believe, because Christ has paid for our sins. And so, Lord Jesus, you sat down. Your sacrifice is completed, and we are your people. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for making us heirs. We rejoice amidst everything that we could boast about. We know, Lord, that we boast ultimately only in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen.